So my people doing time Exhibit Juvenile Y'all need to Wake up everybody Nature Ja Rule Reptile Come on, Look, bring I made you main, living in this house of pain. Stuck with a thousand street hustlers down on they luck. Repeat felons, recorded with the death I was selling. And for the past three months, yo, I can still hear my victims yelling. But I can't listen to my conscience, it's nonsense. If I didn't shoot, I'd be the Indian in the suit, in the box under the ground. Fox chased by the hound, like permanent frown, exhibit get down by lifting iron by the pound for the tough individual. Run and run his mouth, throw some hands with the general. Walk one day in the shoes of a criminal. Death disease, keep the luxuries to a minimal. I'm not talking about weed jewels and Bentleys. I'm talking about. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Thomas Freeme TV and Podcast Show. Um, first and foremost, I want to apologize for the delay in, in these episodes with Tanawa and I and some of the other episodes. I, I have several that I need to get out. Um, but as I've explained in prior episodes, uh, this is just me doing this. And, and I've reached a pretty rough stretch where I had to get out and, and, and uh, just put this stuff to the side for a little bit and get caught up on my bills, um, things of that nature. This is my passion. And until um, it starts producing uh, to where I can set aside some of these other tasks that I have to do in order to get these bills paid, uh, that's just what I have to do. So I greatly appreciate the patience that my supporters and listeners have. I love you for it. And I will continue to try to bring the uh the best message that i can you know produce the best documentaries messages discussions that only thomas free me seems to be able to bring so uh with tanawa uh, his his situation is is somewhat likewise you know uh, he's got a lot of issues going on in his life and you know, we're, we're both uh, ping pong at each other, you know, um, when he's ready to go, I'm not ready. And when I'm ready to go, he's not ready. So it's just kind of being able to, to meet up. And today, fortunately enough, we have been able to do that. Today's discussion is going to be on Barron versus Baltimore. You've heard this case. It's a U.S. Supreme Court decision. And you've heard this case um, cited many times throughout the discussions with Tanawa and I over the last few weeks. And I'm going to read you exactly what Barron versus Baltimore is, what this decision is. So Barron versus Baltimore was decided in 1833. The Supreme Court ruled that the Constitution's Bill of Rights restricts only the powers of the federal government and not those of the state governments. <clears throat> the case began with a lawsuit filed by John Barron against the city of Baltimore, claiming that the city had deprived him of his property in violation of the Fifth Amendment, 
which provides that the government may not take private property without just compensation. He alleged that the city ruined his busy wharf in Baltimore Harbor by depositing around the wharf sand and earth cleared from a road construction project that made the waters around the wharf too shallow to dock most vessels. The state court found that the city had unconstitutionally deprived Barron of private property and awarded him $4,500 in damages to be paid by the city in compensation. An appellate court then reversed this award. Barron appealed to the Supreme Court, which reviewed the case in 1833. The Supreme Court, in a decision written by Chief Justice John Marshall, ruled that Barron had no claim against the state under the Bill of Rights because the Bill of Rights does not apply to the states. The court asserted that the Constitution was created by the people of the United States to apply only to the government that the Constitution had created, the federal government, and not for the government of the individual states. The separate states had drafted constitutions only to apply to themselves, limiting the actions of only state governments. Thus, the Fifth Amendment must be understood as restricting the power of the general government, not as applicable to the states. The court argued that the val validity of this conclusion is bolstered by the fact that the Constitution nowhere states that the Bill of Rights also limits the actions of state governments. Thus, the state of Maryland, through the actions of the city of Baltimore, did not infringe on the Constitution. With no federal claim, the Supreme Court thus lacked jurisdiction to hear Barron's case and dismissed it. Good morning, good sir. Perfect time. Good morning. Good morning. I think you're still yeah, on so mute. I, are you I'm muted? Good. How are you? I have no sound from you. You have no sound? It might be me. Hold on. Let me. It might be me. Okay. It might be me. Okay, let me hear you. Okay, can you hear me now? I can't hear you. It was me. All right. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm doing good. Doing good. Um, gonna fly out today and meet some uh, some people in Michigan, and and uh, I I think we're we're about to start seeing some stuff happen here real soon, and I I'm I'm hopeful of that I think that uh, you know there's a lot of people that I think are working for God and don't even realize it, and I I see a lot of it a lot of it happening. Everything's you know working for the good right now, uh, even the bad. So yeah, what you just read was Baron versus Baltimore. You know. To, to, to think that the Supreme Court of the United States could come up with that sort of a, of a ruling is just, it's, it's fundamentally flawed. I mean, when they say that nowhere within the Constitution does it, does it impair or restrict the states, of course it does. You know, I mean, Article 4 says the citizens in each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities as the citizens in the several states. You know, so, you know, the whole point of the Constitution was to bind a whole bunch of regional governments together into one single government. You know, we have 50 regional governments state governments that, that are all needing to be one. And in order to do that, we have to, we have to have a set of laws that will unite us together. You know, so when we talk about America, the only thing that makes America America is American laws, nothing more than, than that. So, you know, when they say that, that it's that, that nowhere in the constitution does it say that article six also says that the judges in every state shall be, um, uh, shall be bound there by anything in the constitution or laws of any states contrary notwithstanding. You know, so it, it does address it. it. It addresses it multiple times. The, it was obvious that the intended purpose of the states were to act as a neutral, unbiased judge. 
and uh, and that that's that's supported by Thomas Jefferson's definition of federalism. So, <clears throat> well, let me ask, who who is John Marshall? Who appointed him? What was his his uh, his you know his uh, party affiliation and such? So, yeah, so that's that's a good question. Um, between uh, one second here, look, I'm looking. <clears throat> so between uh. 1862 and 1882, this is a separate period of time, um, there were 14 justices that were raised to the United States Supreme Court. Everyone, except for Chief Justice Harlan, uh, did not support any sort of individual civil rights or, or uh, uh, individual liberty. They were all in support of, of business and business interests. And we can see that from their, from their rulings that were put into place. Um, there's another very interesting um, uh, point, and that's that um, just one second. Let me find it here. Um, so go, go ahead. Um, well, the reason why I ask is because I, I, I want, well, I would like my listeners, uh, you know, perception and viewpoints to come from the manner of, of where the times were and what was going on around, you know, is, you know, and it's, it's kind of like just, What's going on today with the nominees of, of the Supreme Court justices that's being nominated and all the politics and, and power moves behind that? And, and I'm, I'm pretty safe to assume, I think, that that same structure was being applied back then as well. You know, yeah. these, these moves that were being put, these power moves that were being made to put representatives in place that was going to go along with certain agendas, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we, we saw that all through the Gilded Age with with the with the senators, you know, senators right. were elected, uh, by or were elected by the state congresses and, and and not by the people. And that had to change because that was they were being bought out by uh, by businessmen. And uh, and so we were seeing during during the beginning of our country, we saw a lot of of a lot of acts of deprivation of rights. I mean, we we've never really been free. Our, our country's never actually experienced the things that we that we were promised. And uh, and that's unfortunate because, you know, I think that our laws, you know, allow for it, but but it, it never happened. So Chief Justice uh, Marshall, I don't know who appointed him, but he, he, I believe he was the second uh, Chief Justice of the, of the Supreme Court. The first was John Jay, who was one of the drafters of the of the Constitution. And so early on, uh, you know, just like in the case of Chisholm versus Georgia, remember, Chisholm was the one that said that, that there is no sovereignty of the states. You know, that was that was by individuals, justices who actually were involved in the drafting of the Constitution of the United States. So, you know, they believed in it. They, they, they wrote it. They, you know, they thought that it would work. And, um, but immediately after, you know, starting from that, with that second court on, you know, we saw, we saw acts of, that were, they were fundamentally changing the Constitution. Um, and this is a great example, you know, it's Barron versus Baltimore. And uh, I know that Barron versus Baltimore, that they say that it was technically overruled by the 14th Amendment, but it wasn't. Uh, it was brought back in. And so um, we'll get to that in a moment. But, uh, you know, our country's made many mistakes. I mean, we've made a lot of decisions that are based upon financial interests. And, and so we've, uh, um, we've got a long history of, of doing that and, and depriving um, certain groups of individuals, you know, equal status and equal rights because of our desire to advance business interests and, and money. You know, when we run our country as though it's a business, then obviously we're going to want to make money as a, as a, as a nation. And, 
the way that nations make money is through the expense of the citizenry. So, uh, so, so the history on John Marshall is after losing to Jefferson in the tumultuous election of 1800, Adams nominated Marshall as Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. He took office in early 1801, just weeks before Jefferson's inauguration. So that gives you kind of a mindset of who this guy, how he was appointed, when he was brought in. They use the word tumultuous election. So that's something I want to go back and look at and see what was so tumultuous about the election of 1800 and kind of give an idea of the, the social economics of that time. Yeah. So Jefferson, uh, Jefferson, Jefferson was, uh, it was Jefferson, you said, right? Jefferson was coming in. Yeah. After, after Adams, John Adams lost the election to Thomas, to Jefferson um, yeah. is when they appointed yeah. this guy, John Marshall, who made this Barron versus Baltimore ruling. So we were having a split in parties. That, that was right around the time that, that we had the establishment of the two-party system. Um, you know, Jefferson was the, was the Democratic-Republican Party, so he was kind of both. And then Adams was, was the old Federalist Party, which was much more conservative and, and built upon, uh, upon the central government rule. Jefferson actually, I'm not sure why he did it, but he moved away from uh, support of the central government and went back to a localist view. You know, so like I said, there's, when the constitution was being drafted, there were actually two options that they were looking at. One was a, a localist view where they maintained sovereignty at the states and, 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 and local power, more power at the, at the, at the local uh, government and less power at central government. And thus it would be more like a democracy, right? They, you'd have sovereignty of the states. But like I said, we had those issues, the issues of, of no, uh, no way to make the states implement the laws that we put into place, no executive officer to oversee it. Um, no uh, um, judicial authority to be able to make decisions that would impact all of the regional governments. You know, those were the three issues that we had. And that's why we have uh, the three branches of government that were established, because each one of those questions were were addressed by each one of the establishment of, of the three branches of government. So, again, it was the localist view, which would be, um, um, you know, what Thomas Jefferson was moving toward. He thought that states needed to maintain their sovereignty, maintain the power versus the central government. Uh, being strong and powerful and being able to um, uh, impose a, uh, decisions that would impact all of the regional governments, which is really what federalism is all about. That's what our nation is all about, because in order for us to be equal, um, we've got to uh, we've got to have laws that would apply equally among all the people across all the all the governments. When you start having states that impose their own their own laws upon the people, then you have an unequal treatment of people. We don't have unity across our nation. That's more like a Euro the European Union than it is the United States of America. And so, you know, um, I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to go into the actual letter, the, the actual uh, legal argument that was, that was submitted uh, to the United States Supreme Court. It was actually submitted to the Ninth Circuit, but it was supposed to go to the Supreme Court. That actually took my case and remanded it to it because um, I think that it, it, it describes a lot of this, right? certainly the bond. So if you don't mind, could I do that? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> and again, so when I took my case, I took it first to the, to the district court, obviously we prepared an argument. They, uh, they, they turned it down and said, Nope, you got to go back and argue with the States. I came back with a rebuttal, uh, identifying the fact that they have a duty that's, that's been established that they need to, uh, then they need to make a decision on this case. And if they choose to not, then it would be misconduct. And I define misconduct and they went ahead and dismissed it again. So now we have a, an intentional act of misconduct uh, by a judge who's refusing to fulfill a duty and obligation 
it's imposed upon him by statute. So then it went to the Ninth Circuit, and I and I and I showed them that listen, you know, you guys, uh, uh, this district court, they made this decision, and it was it was under misconduct. And then I defined the um, uh, the the way that that the Ninth Circuit actually goes through the process to determine whether or not uh, misconduct has occurred. And it's a two part process. And the first part is um, is did the judge apply the wrong, the incorrect ruling or the incorrect rule? And he did because he, he um, or the wrong test. Because there's different types of judicial tests. The highest form of test is what's called the um, strict scrutiny, which is compelling state interest test. There must be a compelling reason for them to make to make this law legitimate, uh, and that's called the compelling state interest test, and it applies for strict scrutiny. Um, the lowest test is called just discretionary test, which means that the judge has the discretion to make a decision to do something or not do something. And so, when it comes to fundamental constitutional rights, you have to employ strict scrutiny, you know, and you have to employ the compelling state interest test. So yes, he did absolutely uh, apply the wrong test because he used discretion to decide to deprive me of these rights. Now, the second one is, is, is an erroneous view of the law is an automatic uh, abusive discretion. And an erroneous view of law is the belief that a judge made ruling such as for Todd versus California can alter the provisions of guarantees of the constitution of the United States. So the, that a judge made ruling is in legal contemplation superior to the United States constitution. That would be an erroneous view of the law, obviously, because the constitution of the United States is superior. You wouldn't go with ruling to, to make that decision. And so that's what this is all about. My case is actually going to her versus California, which uh, that was with the weight court and the weight court decided that, that the, that the grand jury indictment clause one of amendment five does not apply to states and therefore the state of Washington can, can deprive me of the of the indictment by a grand jury. So uh, the way that I'm going to be able to get to Barron versus Baltimore is obviously the state of Washington, the Hurtado case is direct progeny from Barron versus Baltimore. The reason why they, they do it is because of Barron versus Baltimore. So I will be able to attack Barron versus Baltimore through Hurtado because of the state's deprivation. And so that's what this letter is all about. It was a letter that remanded my case to the United States Supreme Court. And it goes like this. The great philosopher Nietzsche once said, those who fight monsters should see to it that in the process they don't become a monster. There are two vastly opposing legal doctrines at work in America at this time. Our system of government is founded upon the government of laws doctrine, which is constitutionally based. It's built upon the theory that in order for laws to be legitimate, they must be considered just and equal. This is the egalitarianism approach, which our constitution is framed upon. In order for all men to be equal, government and laws must first treat them equal. This is the way that our system is designed to work, based upon a fixed set of laws or principles in which the courts and people adhere to, and which every United States citizen is accustomed to. The opposite of the government of laws doctrine is the legal realism doctrine, which is very much alive and at work here in America, destroying our system of government and infringing on the rights of the people. Legal realism, of course, is the theory that law is not based upon a formal set of rules or principles, but instead upon judicial decisions, deriving from their own social, political, or public policy. This is not constitutionally based as it does not permit the fair and equal treatment of people. An excellent example of legal realism is the belief that a judge-made ruling such as Hurtado versus California can alter the provisions or guarantees of the United States Constitution. When one attempts to combat the doctrine of legal realism, they oftentimes utilize horrible judicial decisions, such as Plessy versus Ferguson or Dred Scott versus Sanford, whereby the United States Supreme Court Chief Justice Taney stated in his dissenting opinion that blacks are not and were not intended to be included under the word citizen in the Constitution. Blacks are so far inferior that they have no rights which a white man is bound to respect. Slaves are private property protected by the Constitution. I don't think that there's a single United States citizen alive today who can help but feel shame and anger at those horrible words spoken by the highest member of the highest court in our land. There's no doubt that decision was made at a time of 
great conflict for our nation and clearly bias and sympathy to the South. The alteration of the Constitution in order to perpetuate slavery is not approved by God and should never be supported by good men. What has happened has happened, but to deny it would be a great travesty. You see, a slave-based system cherishes ignorance because that's the only security for its oppression. Slavery is the mortal antagonist our democratic institution. Truth is the only thing which people can be certain of. But truth doesn't cease to be truth simply because no one has the courage to speak up to defend it or because someone else disagrees with it. Truth is never dependent upon the consensus of opinion. If a thousand people believe something to be foolish, yet one person knows it to be true, it is still true. Truth can never be made a lie any more than a lie can be made truth. The truth is that slavery, by any other name, is still slavery. Simply retitling justice doesn't make it any less appalling. Changing it from a private institution to a state-run institution doesn't make it any more constitutionally acceptable. It is still slavery. And it is still a horrible injustice wrong against humanity, regardless of what you call it or how you disguise it. While we're on the topic of truth, let's produce some more truth. In the case of Plessy versus Ferguson, there were eight of the nine United States Supreme Court justices who said that blacks are far inferior, that they have no rights which white man was down to follow. In this case, there was one single brave Supreme Court justice who dissented with the rest, stating, our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. With respect to civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. This brave patriot was Justice John Marshall Harlan, and this wasn't the only time that he found himself as a lone dissenter against every other justice on the United States Supreme Court. One other such instance was in the case of Hurtado versus California. You see, the truth is, the same eight of the nine United States Supreme Court justices who said that slaves are private property protected by the Constitution also said the United States citizens are not protected by the provisions and guarantees of the Fifth Amendment. The truth is that the same eight of the nine United States Supreme Court justices who said that blacks are not people also said that the United States Constitution is not spring law of land and does not enjoy legal superiority over conflicting provisions with state constitutions or laws. The truth is that the same eight of the nine United States Supreme Court justices who said that blacks are far inferior to the white men also said that geographical discriminations are acceptable under our constitutional government. The truth is the same eight of the nine United States Supreme Court justices who said that Blacks are not and were not intended to be included under the word citizen in the Constitution. Also said that states have the right to bridge the privileges and immunities of United States citizens. The truth is that the same eight of the nine United States Supreme Court justices who allowed their political interests to, for the advancement of an industry to cloud their good judgment also put into practice a ruling intended to advance that industry under a different name, overstepping the separation of powers and legislating from the bench in violation of the United States Constitution and the oaths of the offices in which they serve. George Washington voiced his concern about geographical discriminations in his farewell address, whereby he stated, In contemplating the causes which may disturb our union, it occurs as a matter of serious concern for the characterizing parties by geographical discriminations, whence designing men may endeavor to excite a belief that there's a real difference of local interests and views. Foreseeing the potential for dissension here in America, Mr. Washington advised vigilance against the first dawning of every attempt to alienate any portion of our country from the rest or to enfeeble the sacred ties which now link together the various parts. The bonds which unite us as one people are origin, language, belief, and laws. These are the four great ties that hold our whole society together. The Constitution binds the American people to goals that are incompatible with slavery. President Abraham Lincoln said, It has long been a grave question whether any government, not too strong for liberties of its people, can be strong enough to maintain its own existence in great emergencies. United States Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall echoed this sentiment when he said, Grave threats to liberty often come in times of urgency when constitutional rights seem too extravagant to endure. The strongest bond that holds our whole nation together is the faith in the laws between us. This is not the United States of Washington or the United States of California. I didn't serve my country in the military fighting for Texas or Alabama. I was defending America. 
as I am now and as I will continue until such time as God or death has relieved me of this obligation. It's time now for the courts to do the same. Here is some more truth. The truth is the United States citizens are governed by the laws of the United States. The truth is United States citizens are guaranteed the rights secured by the Constitution. The truth is that no person can be held to answer for capital or otherwise infamous crime unless of the presentment or indictment of a grand jury. The truth is that one brave Supreme Court justice did the right thing and stood for American principles despite fierce opposition at a time of great peril. And his sage wisdom can be trusted today. God bless Justice John Marshall Harlan. The truth is that United States citizens can believe and have faith in the United States Constitution because the truth can always be trusted to fight our battles. The truth can always defend itself as long as there's someone with the courage to speak it. The role of government is to govern, but that role to govern must be fair. Government ceases to govern when it chooses to take sides. It's no longer governing, but rather ruling. Every citizen is entitled to fair and equal governing in the same way that every citizen is entitled to equal protection of laws. Thomas Jefferson voiced this to us when he said, bear in mind this sacred principle, that though the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will to be rightful must be reasonable, that the minority possess their equal rights to which equal laws must protect and to violate would be oppression. To understand the rationale behind Article 3, Section 2 of the United States Constitution, which states in all cases in which a state shall be party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction, we can turn to the author himself and the words he published in the Federalist Papers, Circular Number 10, New York Packet, November 23, 1787. The article was titled The Union as a Safeguard Against Domestic Faction and Insurrection. I have something going on here. In the article, James Madison stated, no man is allowed to be judged in his own cause because his interest would no doubt bias his judgment and not improbably corrupt his integrity with equal, nay, with greater reason, a body of men are unfit to be both judge and party at the same time. States cannot be and were never intended to be both judge and party at the same time because of the bias, prejudice, and partiality which would ultimately transpire as a result of it. States cannot be the accuser or else innocence will suffer. So in the same way and for the same reason why Tanwem Downing versus State of Washington in the current civil action is unconstitutional, so also is State of Washington versus Tanwem Downing in the original criminal action is unconstitutional. If one plus two equals three is unconstitutional, then obviously two plus one equals three is also unconstitutional. Simply rearranging the order of the parties does not magically change the representation of the parties. Article three, section two of the United States Constitution clearly states in all cases in which the state shall be party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. As a result, both Tanwem Downing versus State of Washington and State of Washington versus Tanwem Downing are unconstitutional and therefore illegal. And the only court with legal authority to adjudicate both matters is the court which had original jurisdiction in the case to begin with, which is the United States Supreme Court in accordance with the United States Constitution. Our forefathers who framed our constitution were simple yet wise men. They weren't establishing complex principles or elaborate institutions to only men of rich or educated or noble statuses could understand. You see, they were simply trying to create a legal accounting system which adequately and fairly reconciled the debt owed to society. If you choose to violate the law, you incur debt that is owed to society, to which you're charged and then called to account so you can pay the debt. Now, these are all very simple accounting terms. Now, the way the debt normally works is if I want to purchase something from a store, a bill will first be generated, which I sign and accept. Then my account is charged and I incur debt to which I then have to pay. This is a very simple method for transactions which anyone can understand. However, if the store charges a person's account without billing them first, that is called fraud. You must always bill before a charge is generated. How this applies this case is that an indictment is called a bill. So absent an indictment, 
people are being charged fraudulently because they're not being billed first. Understanding this now, anyone who claims that a bill of indictment is not first needed before charging someone's account doesn't understand the basic principles and practices of a system in which they're dealing with. As a result of this very basic fundamental element of our nation's legal accounting system being ignored, millions of United States citizens have incurred illegal and fraudulent debt. America must address this flaw in our nation's legal accounting system. In accordance with Rule 23 of the USCS Rules of Civil Procedure, and in light of all the aforementioned evidence, as well as the supporting evidence, petitioner asked the United States Supreme Court to authorize the application of the class action device in this habeas corpus proceeding. Included within addendum three, the court will, will receive the names of thousands of, of, of only a couple of the thousands of petitioners who filed a rate of habeas corpus pursuant to Title 28 USC 2254 between April 10th, 2019 and September 2019, whose cases raised the exact same allegations and were illegally and unconstitutionally dismissed by the United States District Court, despite the jurisdictional error and who are all now entitled remanding the case to the United States Supreme Court for legal and constitutionally acceptable adjudication. The last point that I'd like to make is that every single thing I'm advocating is consistent with God's divine attributes. Release of prisoners, return of exiled captives, love and move of hate, compassion, not condemnation, forgiveness instead of vengeance, equity, not tyranny. I know what side I'm on. So ask yourself, if I fight for God and you fight against me, who is it that you are fighting for? Respectfully and peacefully, a servant of justice, Tana William Downing. <clears throat> so we were supposed to be a government of laws we were always supposed to be a government of laws those laws were supposed to derive from the constitution of the united states that was our foundation and uh the further we get away from the from the constitution the more chaos our country sees and 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 feels and uh like i said the only thing that makes america america is american laws so when you look at legal realism, um, you know, all through history, all through history, the, the law has been, um, it's exposed the, the political nature of, of these legal rules. And it's portrayed the law, first and foremost, as an instrument of oppression against the disenfranchised. You know, people, people don't like the law. They, they, they have a problem with it. But it's not the law that's the, that's the issue. It's the application of the law in, improperly or unequally among the people and that's done by a ruler that's done by someone in, in a position of power and uh we've got to have people in in place certainly judges in place that that recognize that that it's very important for our nation to um to sustain itself and to uh and to, and to progress in progress and the way that we do that is by adhering to our laws chief justice day he actually or uh, justice day he said that that um that nothing destroys the country quicker than failure to obey their own laws. And, and I think that, that's, that that says it all, that, you know, our nation, we're not following the Constitution of the United States. We're not, we're not following the Supreme Law of land. We're following these judicial rulings, and we're allowing these judges to, to change our, our Constitution. We know that we have the freedom to speak, and that government cannot, cannot interfere, obstruct, or hinder free speech in order to control the narrative. And yet we're allowing them to do it every single day. You know, and we can't do that. Um, well, I'm sitting you know, we're, here. We're, I'm sitting here reading the history on on you know John Marshall and it's it's what well, it's like you said earlier you know he he John Marshall started moving in as a strong advocate for the Federalist Party you know uh, and and this was coming about during George Washington's terms as president he was he was making his his moves you know in the the political arena and as you described you know the 
the Federalists favor a strong national government. Right. Right. So how if 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 this is his mindset, right? He's he's a Federalist in, in thought, in theory, then how does that impact his decision on stating that the states have no accountability towards the the bill of rights and that the bill of rights is only applicable to the federal government and not the states yeah you know i i'm not gonna i'm not gonna speculate that what i do know is that is that you can see a change in in most of these judges um there comes a point in time when when initially they're they're they seem to me on the right side and then at some point in time they change and i think that there were a lot of a lot of people that were bought out. I mean, even Chief Justice John Marshall Harlan, who I have a, a great amount of respect for, you know, he was the only justice during you know that period of time from 1862 to 1884 that sided at all with 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 black uh, uh, individuals or United States citizens and or incited against the business right. You know, but even at the very end, he finally ended up making a decision in in the in the um, uh, 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 the Louisiana case that. Um, um, the one that, that that allowed for state sovereignty, and he, that was a unanimous decision by the court, and it included Justice John Marshall Harlan. And I think that what he said was that was that um, Chisholm versus Georgia was was a good decision or a good ruling made at the time. Well, you, it doesn't change. You don't change sovereignty in the middle. It, it it doesn't happen. So when Chief Justice John Marshall Harlan made the decision to to allow for states to have sovereignty in in, uh, in 18, uh, 1895. You know, unfortunately, that was that was contrary to to you know the fundamentals of of federalism as well. And so, um, I don't know which is with Chief Justice John Marshall. I think that a lot of people. Um, I've read his book. I, a lot of people think that he made some great decisions, but he made some bad ones as well. And this is a great example of a bad one. You know, to say that 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 the states are not accountable to the uh, to the Bill of Rights. There's a couple. There's a couple questions. You know, and that is. Is the Bill of Rights part of the Constitution? Well, according to Article 5, it says that uh, proposed amendments, once ratified, become part of the Constitution in all intents and purposes. So, yes, when it was uh, ratified by the people on December 15, 1791, it became part of the Constitution, right? So then the next question is, are the judges bound by anything in the Constitution? Well, yes, they are, because Article 6 says the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any states contrary notwithstanding, okay? And so do, then we ask, do judges have the right to be able to, uh, to do something other than what the Constitution says? Well, no, because their oath is bound to the Constitution, right? So everything, everything says that these judges have to follow what's in the Constitution. Even if a state has, has a law that's contrary, they have to do what the Constitution says. So for the Supreme Court of the United States to come out and say that these judges don't have to follow the Constitution of the United States, well, there's the problem, you know? I, I mean they went in and they altered the obligations of the contract. And they said, these judges don't have to do it. And we know that any impairment of the obligation contract is unconstitutional because Article 1, Section 10 says so. They, 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 Congress shall not provide for any, any contract that impairs the obligation of contracts. When the judges enter into a contract with the people that they will do anything in the Constitution, and they swear an oath to the Constitution of the United States, those state judges are bound by, by contract and obligated to do you know, what they promise you know, within that contract. And so when the Supreme Court comes out and says you don't have to do it, that's impairing with the obligation of contracts. It is, in fact, unconstitutional. So another note here, uh, Marshall's impact on the Supreme Court. 
At the time, the Supreme Court had little authority relative to the president and Congress. It didn't even have its own building, meeting instead in a vacant committee room at the Capitol. But over his 34 years as Chief Justice, Marshall shaped the judicial branch into an equal force in government alongside the president and Congress. As a steadfast Federalist, Marshall also interpreted the U.S. Constitution in a way that expanded the power of the federal government relative to the states. In particular, the court's landmark ruling in McCullough versus Maryland, which Marshall also wrote, established the idea that the Constitution gave Congress implied powers beyond those specifically enumerated in the document, including the power to create a national bank that could not be taxed by individual states. In Cohen's versus Virginia, the court affirmed its own right to review the judgments of the state courts, helping to establish the supremacy of federal over state courts. Yeah, you know, I like Cohen versus versus Virginia, and I like um, uh, McCall versus Maryland. I, I like those rulings, and and I think that it's important that we have a strong um, uh, central government. I mean, we we have to, we have to have that unifying force, but it can't be it can't be partial in in one in one side. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, he, he, he talked about the, um, the power of the judiciary, and if, if it consolidated or if it overstepped its separation of powers and it started doing the, the actions or the, or the role of other branches of government, then it would become a despotic uh, um, uh, tyrant that would be worse and more venal than the one in which we separated from. And, uh, you know, so when you have the judicial branch that's making its own laws, it's now legislating from the bench. It's now taking over responsibility of the legislative branch. And, uh, um, and when it's making decisions that, that, that determine who gets arrested and who doesn't get arrested or who gets charged or not charged like they do right now, because, you know, when you come in with information, it's the judge that looks and says, yep, I believe there's sufficient probable cause. Well, now they're moved into enforcement. They moved into a, an area that they weren't responsible for, and it's actually under the executive branch. So, you know, we've got the, the, the judicial branch that's doing the, the work of all three uh, branches of government, and then we don't have those separate branches acting, actually stepping up and saying, "Hey, you you don't have the right to do this." You know, the judicial branch can't legislate; they can't create laws; they create rulings. But if the legislative branch allows them to continue to do it, then hey, they, you know, they'll just continue. And but these these lines were were put into place to uh, to to seal, you know, the duties and responsibilities. Remember, it's the, the, the checks and balances that were put into place to have three separate but equal branches of government to provide those checks and balances so that we can ensure that tyranny and oppression and these things don't, don't occur. You know, right. And, and I think it's important to note there that those three branches of government were supposed to be designed to, to be each other's watchers, not just to be a specific uh, uh, branch that just goes off and does its own thing and nobody watches that branch. It's not like the executive does their own thing. The judicial does their own thing and each rely on the other to get it done, all three are supposed to, to coincide, right? It's, it's all supposed to mesh together to create what the Constitution was trying to bring. I mean, is that correct? Absolutely, it is, yeah. You know, I, I mean, when, when, I, when I submitted a, an action item request to, uh, to the Congressman uh, John, uh, Dan Newhouse, who's my, my congressman here in Washington State, when I submitted it to them, and I was asking them to open up an FBI investigation so that we can deal with this issue that, that occurred to me, right? And, and when they came back, the, uh, the chief of staff, he called me up and he tried to convince me that it's not the legislative branch's responsibility to deal with this issue, right? 
that, hmm. that when the judicial branch oversteps the separation of powers and decides to modify or, or change the Constitution of the United States based upon a ruling, that that's not the legislative branch's responsibility to deal with it. Well, whose responsibility is it? Because it's the legislative branch's responsibility to legislate, to create all laws. The Constitution says all legislative power shall be vested in, in the Congress of the United States. So when you're a member of the Congress of the United States and someone oversteps, the judicial branch oversteps their separation of powers and decides to do your job, it seems to me reasonable that that should be their responsibility to step up and say, you can't do this because well, who that's- else is going to do it? Well, that, well, that's I mean, that's that's a logical question. I mean, if if the judicial branch steers off course and it's far, and it's 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 going hard left or hard right, who is there to to correct course? Nobody, nobody. And therein lies the problem. See, our system of government is 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 one of the main premises behind it is that the political officers in our government are subject to the people. Right. They're subject to the people when we, they need to be, because who is it? That's standing behind the judicial branch and saying and holding them accountable for their actions. They're not subject to the people because they have a lifetime appointment, right? They're not subject to the people. They can do anything that they want, say, make any decision that they want, and they're not accountable to anyone except for their own system. Their own, and they expect own, us to comply to that. Right. And so when you have these, these uh, the, the, the justices of the United States, you know, and they're in the position for life, you can't, we can't kick them out. They can't do, I mean, nothing. We can't can sue them, them, can't touch them, can't do, can't we don't do even nothing. know. Nothing about these people. And, and all of that was put into place by them, you know, by them. So we have a branch of government that is absolutely uh, above everyone else. And so <clears throat> when you talk about the nobility, right, because remember, the whole sovereignty argument that I have is based upon nobility. You know, if you say that you can't bill someone for a crime, you have nobility. And so when you when you look at the history of nobility, there's a couple things that, that they do. One is. Anytime you have a title nobility, you have what's called an honorific. An honorific is a title, and it usually goes before the name, and it's some title that, 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 that they carry. So sir is a great, is a great uh, example of an honorific. But in honorific, they, they, they use the actual, the actual word, and your honor, and they put it before their name, honorable, whatever. I mean, mm. that is an honorific. And so you have these, these individuals who truly feel as though they're, they're nobility. They're, they're kings. They're above the people. and we can't have any branch of government or any, any individual within America that's above the people. We've got to get the judicial branch subject to the people because if they're not subject to the people, then they can do whatever they want. They put whatever rulings they want into place, and they have no recourse whatsoever uh, and no ramifications for these bad decisions that they put into place. You know, so they have to follow the will of people. That that branch of government is 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 essential to ensuring that that the morals and practices and desires of the American people. Are actually followed and put into and, place. And my question is, is like, how in touch are these people? How in touch with our society are these people? They've separate, as you said, that you think, you know, by, and, and that was a great point. I never even thought of it that way as, as, as your honor and, and things of that nature, we have to stand before them and, and give them the utmost respect. And these people are not connected to our society. They live in their own places they're, they're, you'll, you'll never see them amongst the people in towns and, and things of that nature. So these people that are making these decisions that are controlling not our lives, but our children's lives and our children's children's lives, how in touch are they with, with the people of what is going on in this country? Who do they get their information from? They, they, they don't. I mean, they, they make their decisions based upon their own desires. Now, this is, this is what bothers me the most is that 
is that these decisions that they made, you know, so going back to Barron versus Baltimore, 1833, the United States Supreme Court comes out and says, Bill of Rights doesn't apply. United States citizens are not guaranteed the rights that they gave to themselves and that they guaranteed to themselves through the Constitution of the United States. So they said, forget the Constitution. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter. We're, we say what the law is, and we're going, we're going to say that, that criminal defendants don't have the protections of, of criminal um, uh, proceedings, of the, um, the protections of the Constitution. So <clears throat> that decision was made. And then it wasn't until 1925. 1925. Now we passed the the uh, the Fourteenth Amendment, and once again, the Fourteenth Amendment, the the individuals in, introduced it both into the Congress and in or into the House and into the Senate. Both said that this was intended to ensure that that those privileges and immunities that are that are defined within the Constitution and enumerated within the Bill of Rights it from henceforth applies to states. That's what they said, and so there was no denying that the, the intended purpose of the Fourteenth Amendment was to ensure that states were bound. And accountable to the Constitution of the United States, and that was made by Congress. Now, you know, once again, then two, three years later, Chief Justice Waite he goes around that discussion, he goes around the intended purpose of the law, and he pulls back in Barron versus Baltimore, and he says once again that the Bill of Rights does not provide a restriction against the states, but only the federal government. So he brought it back in, even though it was technically overruled in 1868, it was brought back in. But then what what happens is is that it wasn't until 1925 that any of the Bill of Rights, any of them, applied to the states. And it was a case called Gitlow versus New York. And it was the, the freedom of speech was protected against the interference by the states. Now, you would think that if the Supreme Court comes out and says, oh, well, one of the Bill of Rights rights enumerated within it applies to, to as a restriction, then they all should apply, right? I mean, you know, how can you how can you start picking and choosing which ones you want to, to apply and not apply? But it's 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 egregious to think that from 1776 when we're you know when we're established up until 1925 no one had any protections of the Constitution. no one had the protection of freedom of speech nobody you didn't i mean all these freedoms that you said yeah you, you didn't have them none of them well that's what i'm trying to i guess i'm just trying to understand like the rationale behind that if it's if it's only at the federal level how does that apply to the people how does that apply to me so tell me what is the federal government Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. What the hell is the federal? I know the federal government can can put you in prison. I know they can do that. So I'm a United States citizen. The day that I'm born, I'm a United States citizen. Right. Because the 14th Amendment says that all persons born or naturalized in the United States are citizens of the United States and of state where which they reside. Now, that that particular statement is where Chief Justice Waite went and said that said that once again, um, that the, uh, the, the, the Bill of Rights does not apply as restriction against the states. And what he was saying, so the the dual sovereignty theory, right? This 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 theory that there's two different two different uh, citizenships that exist. There's a citizenship within the United States of America, and there's a citizenship within the state where in which you reside. That derives from the case Dred Scott versus Sanford, which is what I just what I talked about within the letter that says that blacks are not and were not intended to be included on the word citizen in the Constitution. What Chief Justice uh, Wait or Chief Justice Taney did in that decision was he created dual sovereignty and this theory of dual, dual sovereignty where where blacks are not citizens of the united states but they still reside within a state therefore they're a citizen of the state and he established this dual sovereignty so you can be a citizen in a state and you can be treated differently than than a citizen of the united states because your rights don't convey to you wherever you choose to reside you're only given whatever whatever rights the state allows and provides for you but that is going back to once again the confederacy right because if you're saying that, and this is this is the big the big thing that that I brought up is that 
if state courts have the ability to deprive me of a right that's secured by the Constitution of the United States, then whose court is more powerful? The state court. Because the federal court, the United States Supreme Court, has to follow the Constitution. So if the state court is able to deprive me of rights that the Supreme Court of the United States has to follow, then that means that the state courts are now more powerful than the Supreme Court. And more importantly, how can the Supreme Court adjudicate or review a case in which the procedures and practices that they have to follow are not being followed? The whole point of the Constitution was to to bond everybody together, was to bind them into a practice that applied equally among everyone. So we had equal rights and equal, equal laws for and treatment of all people. Well, I guess that's what I'm trying to, to, to process, Tanawal, because what I'm hearing you say is according to this ruling, right, Barron versus Baltimore, trying to bring it to today's, you know, uh, uh, climate, is that according to some states, my freedom of speech is not protected. If it's not specifically enumerated within the state constitution, you are not entitled to it. That is that is the that is what's been espoused. And you're saying now, that the state of and you're saying that the state of Washington um, does not recognize uh, the Fifth Amendment. I believe it was. Isn't that what you yeah. said? Yes. Yeah, so, so the grand jury is clause one of Amendment Five. When I submitted this writ in habeas corpus in the in the written allegation against the state, the state specifically said. Their response to it was the Fifth Amendment doesn't apply to the state of Washington. Doesn't and apply. that's because of Barron versus Baltimore. That's that, that derives from Barron versus Baltimore, yeah. Because because when they when Chief Justice Waite came in and said that said brought in once again the dual sovereignty theory, the theory that that oh there's you can be a citizen of a state, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get the rights of the federal government. I, I'm I'm a United States citizen no matter where within the jurisdictional United States I choose to reside. I'm entitled to those by my birthright, no matter where I'm at, right? So when a state says, I'm not going to do it, and the federal government says, okay, you don't have to do it, then, then the Constitution has no, no meaning. It has no, it has no bearing. It has no well, purpose. Well, that's, so when is the American citizen under the, 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 the federal government? Like, when is, when is the American citizen protected by the federal rights? Whenever you're in Washington, D.C., that's it. Just the area of D.C. Because that's the only federal land that there is. We people exist in the physical realm. Right. Law exists in the spiritual realm. Right. Law, law doesn't law doesn't cover the, the, the land. So when we ex- exist within a spiritual realm, then we're or in a physical realm. We're, that's within the state because the states are the only physical element of, of the nation other than the District of Columbia. District of Columbia follows federal laws. Right. And it's the only place. So when you're within the District of Columbia. Yeah, you're free. I mean, that's why all these people, all these all these lawmakers are able to do the things that they're doing and get away with it because because United States citizens are supposed to be governed only by the laws of the United States. When we're when we come into a state, you know, the state of Washington, I'm not bound to the state of Washington laws because I'm a United States citizen. I'm free. Therefore, the only laws that I care about because the only laws that I'm bound to are the laws of the United States. That's it. So that's what makes sense to me. I don't need to know all these laws that the state of Washington creates because they don't apply to me. They don't apply to me until I change my legal relationship with the state. And you do that through a guilty conviction. You do that through adoption. You do that through marriage. You do that through any number of things. You change your legal relationship with the state. And now you become bound and accountable to the state and to state laws. But we're not meant to be that way. I'm a United States citizen, no matter where within the jurisdictional United States I choose to reside. Washington is no different than California. 
It's all part of America. And if America has American laws and that's what makes it America, then you know what? Those laws apply no matter where I'm at, no matter what I'm doing, because that court here in Washington state is, is subject to the, the United States Supreme Court. Well, you would think at least the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, you know what I mean? You would think that the Bill of Rights was was the paramount to any state constitution. And you would think that the state constitution only had to deal with, like you say, your your living quarters, what what you need from the state. You know what I mean? That that is separate from the federal government. Right. That's that's, that's why I say that, that the way that the system was designed to work was that the laws that affect the people were supposed to come from the federal government, right? From the central government. They were to come together as a representative government and they were to determine, you know, what would be a crime and not a crime. So that, and then they would federate them out to each one of the regional governments for administration, right? So um, that way murder would be murder no matter where within the jurisdiction of the United States you choose to reside, it would be the same, the same accountability or the same crime. And so that was the way it was supposed to work. And then the states were to have laws, but those laws were for administrative purposes. To implement and, and in doing so what would happen then is the central government would be the accuser right so the united states of america would be your accuser not the state and the state would then be able to act as a neutral judge right because they don't have any interest in it but when the state creates their own laws their own criminal laws then guess what that judge works for the plaintiff right that's where the conflict of interest occurs is that the states are creating their own laws and then getting the people subject to those laws and now we have unequal treatment of people you know that's why in in, in florida right now I can go down there and I can go without a mask. I can go without my, my, my backs. But here in, in Oregon, you can't. You'll get arrested for it. Or New York, you'll get arrested. We were not supposed to have that separate treatment of people. You know, if we're going to have equality and all people treat equally, we've got to have one set of laws that, that treat them equally. And so that's what, that's what it, it was talking about in the letter uh, remaining the case. It says that, that um, the role of government is to govern, but that role to govern must be fair. Government ceases to govern when it chooses to take sides. It's no longer governing, but rather ruling. So when government chooses to take a side in a case, they're now creating rules. They're now ruling and not governing. The whole point of government was to govern, but that governing must be fair. It has to be. The reason why the United States citizens are, are entitled to fair and equal governing in the same way that they're entitled to equal protection of the laws is because if government is the one administering those laws, then equal, equal governing is is an attribute of that in order to have equal laws you have to have equal governing because the government is in fact the one administering those those laws so you you're entitled to fair and equal governing in the same way that you're entitled to equal protection of laws because otherwise you wouldn't have equal laws because and 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 because of this i can i can i can see with a little bit more clarity as to how an individual can be charged with a state crime and a federal crime even though that it's the same crime and, and be charged from two different entities and, and sentenced under those two different entities. But yet, however, when it comes to our rights, we're not protected, you know, by, by that, that federal government. Uh, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's mind blowing to me to, because yeah. I'm sitting so, there trying to process this. So, so there's two things, right? There's two different uh, uh, judicial um, functions here. One is at the state, one is the federal government. The federal government was not supposed to have its own justice system, right? Right. Article three specifically states the trial of all crimes with the exception of impeachment shall be by jury and the trial shall occur in the state where in which the crime is said to have been committed. Nowhere in that does it say anything about the establishment of a federal government or a federal uh, justice system, right? It specifically states the state. And so, you know, obviously the founder's intended purpose was to 
was for the states to adjudicate the crimes. And that's why Article 3 says that, that in all cases, which a state shall be party, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction, because the intended purpose was for the states to be neutral and unbiased. The central government would create the laws, they'll federate them out, and then the judge would be the state, and the state would then be able to investigate, not take a side because they don't have any interest in it, right? But, however, if the federal government became a party in the cause, then you would need an, an, a neutral and biased third party, which in that case would be the states. You know, so the state is supposed to be the judge whenever the federal government has a, 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 a claim against you. But if the state chooses to have a claim against you, then the federal government becomes the neutral, unbiased third party. This is the United States Supreme Court. It couldn't be the district courts because the district court judges were elevated or raised right out of the states. You know, so they would have still had preferences or, or biases toward state interests and state laws. So the only court that the, that the, that the framers felt would be able to be neutral and unbiased at the federal level would be the United States Supreme Court because they're elevated into a position where they're no longer accountable to states. So it was never, never, never supposed to be states taking a part in the cause. They were never supposed to have their own laws because if they did, then guess what? The federal government becomes the neutral and biased third party. It doesn't function that way, but that's the intended purpose. And so, you know, you can't have a crime. You can't have a crime committed and then, and then with the state, and then you pay your debt back for that crime or that alleged crime, and then have to go and pay it again without violating double jeopardy. How can the federal government come in and charge you for the same offense that you've already paid your debt for, right? It, it, it doesn't work that way. Or come in and pick up a charge that the state doesn't have the evidence to, to you know what I mean, to process. The state turns over charges to the federal government all the time, and they don't have the, the, the evidence or the resources to process this. So, when, Article 6 says, when Article 6 says this Constitution and the laws of the United States shall be the supreme law of land, right? That means that they enjoy legal superiority over conflicting provisions with state constitutions or laws, right? Exactly. We have the federal laws that were created and, and by the representative government, and those apply to every single person across the United States. So when the states come in and say, well, we're going to do something different, right? You've got that, that unequal application. If a state can't prosecute because there's insufficient evidence, that doesn't give the federal government the right to come in. Otherwise, the state should be using the federal laws to, to, to prosecute. I mean, those are, those are the laws that they're bound by. So and, and wrapping this up, T, right, because yeah. because this is a lot of information. Right. And and there's no question that, you know, this. But for like me and my listeners and, and things that this is this is very overwhelming and 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 to process. How can we um, just just break down how Barron versus Baltimore is affecting our everyday lives today? Every day we have rights that are deprived of us based upon rulings. And we can go through these rulings and we can look at the origin of them. You know, when you talk about the freedom of speech, that was Gitlow versus New York, right? But if the states are still looking at the, at the, at the base fundamental ruling and, and that fundamental ruling says that you, that you don't have this entitlement, the states are using those as a mechanism to deprive you of a right, to, to keep themselves from being accountable. So it goes to the, to the, to the, the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine which is that um, if the root is bad or the foundation is bad, then obviously, you know, all the fruit that drives from it will also be bad. So if the foundation is unconstitutional, then obviously all the fruit that drives from it would also be unconstitutional because they're tainted by the illegality of the way in which they were obtained. Okay. So when we have Barron versus Baltimore that's in place or Dred Scott versus Sanford that's in place that create two different major issues, right? 
Dred Scott versus Sanford created what's called a tyranny. So tyranny is the unequal application of laws by a ruler, by someone in, in a position of power. So when a judge makes a decision to uh, to um, to deprive individuals of, of rights, that would be a, t- a tyrant. He would be acting um, in, in tyranny. Oppression, in contrast, is the unequal application of a law. So when a law creates unequal treatment of people, then that would be oppression. You know, government would be uh, oppressing. So those two rulings are the foundation of, of most all of this tyranny oppression that we see across the United States because it, it allows for the tyrants, the judges to act as tyrants and to apply the law unequally based upon their own social, political, or public policy. They can pick and choose. But then you have the ability to create laws that are unconstitutional. You have the ability for a state to create a law that says, I'm going to deprive United States citizens residing within my borders or within the state's borders, the rights that are secured by the Constitution of the United States and able to do it based upon this route, the route being Barron versus Baltimore. So until we go back and we remove from and we stricken from the record those foundational issues, because if you're building a house and the foundation is bad, do you just you just repair it? The foundation, do you just keep building? No, the, the house is going to fall apart if you don't go back and, and fix the problem at the, at the foundation. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're at right now is that we have cracks in our foundation. It goes back to 1833. It was there. It was put into place. And all we're doing right now is putting a Band-Aid on it. But that Band-Aid is only temporary. Every single time a case comes up, all they do is put another Band-Aid on it. Another band We got to fix the foundation. And unfortunately, when we go and fix the foundation, we have to do that uh, with the understanding that, that we have to let everything, all the chips fall where they, where, where they will. Because once you remove the foundation, right, the flawed foundation, it's going to affect a whole bunch of cases behind it called progeny. That's the reason why this has never been addressed. So in 1925, in 1925, that was when the very first right was secured and protected against interference by the states in the case Gitlow versus New York, right? So that same year, Congress came out with the Judicial Reform Act of 1925. That Judicial Reform Act, what it did was it gave the United States Supreme Court and all state courts, Supreme Courts, the ability to be a court of discretion. All right. Why did they do that? They did that because they found out that for the last 120 years, we haven't been given United States citizens the rights that are secured by the Constitution of the United States. And the Congress said, that's a pretty big deal. So what we're going to do is we're going to make the court a court of discretion now because then they can pick and choose what cases they want to hear or not hear so that they don't have to listen to these cases. So they don't have to hear these cases that will affect them because it's just too big of a deal. That's what they did. That's what they did. There's no denying that. They came out and they made that court a court of discretion. Now, that particular act, right, because remember, acts of Congress must comply with the Constitution of the United States. If there's an obligation that's established by the Constitution, then even Congress can't go and change it, right? So that law is only legitimate and lawful and constitutional so far as it does not impair the obligations of the Constitution. So when the Constitution identifies in Article 3 a specific duty that, that says that the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction anytime the state is named a party, guess what? That is an obligation established by the Constitution. Therefore, that, that the Judicial Reform Act cannot violate it. So the, the United States Supreme Court can be a court of discretion so far as it, the state is not a party in the cause. The moment the state becomes a party in cause, that, that court does not have the right to be discretion. They have to hear those cases because that's an obligation created by the Constitution, imposed upon them. And Congress can't, can't impair that. So when we go to the, to the Supreme Court of the United States, guess what? Today, we do not have a right. To, to, to have our case heard by the Supreme Court. We should, right? Every one of us should have our cases be able to heard by the highest court in the land. But, but they pick and choose. They say, no, we're not going to see this case. And then we're right. going to see that case. 
They use discretion to be able to pick and choose what cases they want to hear. Right. Every single one of us have the right to have that court hear our cases. Right. And right always drives from another's duty to act. They have the duty. Therefore, we have the right. So when we go to them and we say, I want you to hear my case because something occurred within it, it was wrong. And they deny us that. And they say, we're not going to hear it. Guess what? That's a breach of duty. And when you have uh, the, the breach of duty, it results in the violation of the rights. Remember, we all receive civil rights as a result of accepting the obligation to protect the rights of others. Every single one of us today have the right to take our cases to the United States Supreme Court, and they have a duty to hear those cases. And if they choose not to, through discretion or whatever, that's the violation of the duty or the breach of duty, which results in our violation of our rights. So we need to remember that. But, you know, I like something that that Marshall said, and I I don't remember which cases came from. I think it was uh, McCall versus Maryland. But he said that the power of government is defined and limited, and those limits may not be mistaken or forgotten because the Constitution is written. To what purpose are powers limited? And to what purpose is that limitation committed to writing if those limits may at any time be passed by those intended to be restrained? The difference between a government with limited powers and unlimited powers is abolished if those limits do not confine the person on whom they are imposed. And if acts prohibited and acts allowed are of equal obligation, it is a proposition too plain to be contested that the Constitution controls any acts, statutes, customs, or rulings repugnant to it, or that the judiciary may alter the Constitution by a simple ruling made by a group of judges intent upon the advancement of an industry and not upon the will of the people. By the way, that last little bit was, was written by me. The judiciary does not have the right to change that. If it's in a written form, everyone must obey it, including those that are, that are ruling over us. Absolutely. There's so, no question. Um, you know, like I said, the, the law has always been portrayed as, as, a, as a, a weapon of oppression. It's always been abused by those in position of power because that's what they do. That's what, that's what happens when they get into power. And so as a United States citizen, no matter where I reside within the United States, I'm entitled to those rights secured by and enumerated in the Constitution of the United States. That is the truth. And that is, that is for every single one of us. And no one can take away, no one can change that. If we walk into the Supreme Court tomorrow and we say, I'm entitled to Clause 1 of Amendment 5, I'm entitled to the grand jury, I'm entitled to be present during that, that accusation, I'm entitled to hear those, those accusations against me and to counter them, then guess what? What can they say? They can, they can come up with 20-page argument of, of, of rubbish, but we can say it once again. This is what the Constitution says. No person shall be held to answer for capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on the presentment or indictment of a grand jury. Amen. That's clear. We can say that a hundred times, and there is no lie that can, that can penetrate that. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on the presentment or indictment of a grand jury. We can speak those words, and, and no, one can, no one can counter it. They can come up with any lie that they want, but that does not change those words. Right. And that's what we need to remember is that, is that what is it that we believe in? Well, the strongest bond that holds our nation together is the faith in the laws between us. That's what we need to believe in. We need to believe in those laws because those laws are the truth. And if it says it right in there, you know, when you're looking at contract law, the easiest and quickest way to determine whether or not there's a breach in contract is what's called the four corners test. Show me where in the four corners of this document, it says that I'm not entitled to an indictment by a grand jury. I'll show you where it says I am entitled to it. They won't be able to show me where, where, it's, where I'm not entitled to it. Therefore, it's not consistent with the contract. We well, know, we, every one of us knows that if you have a contract and you don't write within it so the specifics that, that, are, that are required or expected, 
you're not going to win. You're not going to win the argument. You you got to you got to detail. It's got to be written. And I'll tell you what, it is written that says that I am entitled to it. It's not written that says I'm not entitled to it. That's a breach of contract. And 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 final uh, question: How would you see today's panel ruling on that decision? Today's today's justices. I think that if if we get into that courtroom 